All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation 15. Last week in chapter 14, we saw the lamb, the 144,000, and the double harvest. Jesus, the slain and victorious lamb, standing on Mount Zion, protecting and defending his people. This week, we find seven angels with seven plagues, which will be judgment on the land. And the conquering church sings a song of praise to God for his great deeds. So let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 15. Follow along, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Well, as is true with so much of the book of Revelation... It really helps to have the Old Testament background in order to understand what's happening here in this book. And for this particular scene in chapter 15 of Revelation, there's a lot of places in the Old Testament that can help us, but there's two in particular. And I'm going to have you turn to them this morning. The first one is Exodus chapter 15. So go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 15. Just to kind of catch you up, uh, if it's been a little while since you've read Exodus, at this point in the book of Exodus, the Israelites have just left Egypt. God had sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh. God had sent the ten plagues on the land of Egypt. And eventually, Pharaoh relented and sent the Israelites away. But as soon as they left, Pharaoh changed his mind and chased after them with his army. The Israelites found themselves trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea. And then God miraculously parted the waters of the Red Sea. Israel marched through on dry land and Pharaoh's army followed them. And as soon as the Israelites were across the Red Sea, God sent the waters crashing back down on Pharaoh's army and Israel was saved. Now, look at how this is described. Actually, just kind of, you're, you're in Exodus 15. Look at the end of Exodus 14. Exodus 14, verses 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. 
Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. So picture it. The Israelites are standing on the far shore and the text tells us that they saw two things. They saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They've witnessed the judgment of God. And they saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So God's salvation or deliverance of Israel meant that his justice and wrath fell on their enemies. And that then results in a particular response from the Israelites. What do they do? They sing. They rejoice. And the beginning of chapter 15 is the song of Moses that they sang in celebration. Let's just look at the beginning of the song. Exodus 15 verses 1 through 3. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord saying, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. So they rejoice at God's salvation for them and God's defeat of their enemies. And in Revelation 15, okay, so you don't need to turn back there yet, but Remember what we read, Revelation 15, the conquerors are standing by the sea singing, just like in Exodus 15. And they're singing of God's amazing deeds and of his justice and righteousness. The judgments that are being poured out in Revelation are salvation for God's people and defeat of God's enemies. Now, here in Exodus 15, Look at verse 14, Exodus 15, 14. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Or in verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them. So the nations hear about God's deeds. Well, back in Revelation 15, verse 4, the conquerors sing, Who will not fear, O Lord? And the nations hear of God's deeds and they come to worship him. So hold the imagery of the song of Moses in Exodus 15 in your mind as we continue this morning. Okay? The other passage I want you to turn to with me this morning is centered on Deuteronomy 32. Go ahead and start by turning to Deuteronomy 29. I just want to scan a couple of things before we get to Deuteronomy chapter 32. So start in Deuteronomy 29. We'll see the setup to chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32 is the other song of Moses. There are two songs in scripture that are called the song of Moses. So we have to ask which one is in view in Revelation 15. When we're told that the conquerors sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And here's a hint. It's both. John has both songs of Moses in mind in Revelation 15. Okay. Now, here in Deuteronomy, 
This song comes at the end of Moses' life, at the end of Israel's wilderness wandering, just before they enter the promised land under the leadership of Joshua. So there's 40 years between the two songs of Moses, Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32. And this is a song that God gives to Moses and Moses and Joshua teach it to the people so that they will continue to sing it and remember God's words. Now, the fact is, Moses is about to die at this point. And this forms a bit of a crisis for Israel. Now, think about it. I mean, he's, he's really the only leader that they've had. He's the one who met with God. He's been the mediator. He's the one who has brought God's words to the people. So in these chapters, it's almost as if there's a formal plan being put in place to transition Israel to be ready to establish their own nation in the land. And the book of Deuteronomy has been a restatement of God's law. The word Deuteronomy actually means second law. It's the second statement of the law, the second giving of the law. Up through chapter 28, the book of Deuteronomy, from the beginning up through chapter 28, Moses has been restating the law. And now, take a quick scan of chapters 29 and 30. What you'll see there in chapters 29 and 30 is that Moses preaches a sermon. Okay, he preaches a sermon. So he speaks the word of God. Now look at chapter 31. Look at chapter 31. In chapter 31, Moses writes the word of God down. We'll, we'll look at that more closely in a minute. Then in chapter 32, he sings the word of God. This is the other song of Moses. So this covenant, this statement of the law, this summary is given by spoken word, written word, and sung word. And I want to take a little time this morning for you to hear this and get a sense of what God said to Israel, because that's going to help us better understand Revelation 15. We can't do all of it in detail, but I'll highlight some important things. And then I'll read part of the song of Moses for you. So let's pick it up in Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Moses has gathered all of Israel. He's preached the sermon. He's commissioned Joshua as the next leader. And then we read this beginning in verse nine. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. Assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your towns, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God, and be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Okay, a couple of things to note. First, Moses wrote the law. Now before this, the Ten Commandments had been written down on stone, but the rest of it was oral. Now, Israel has law 
in written form. Second, Moses told them to gather all the people, including the little ones, for the reading of the law. Sometimes we worry about whether the kids are ready to hear some of the sensitive things in the law, or we worry about whether they'll be bored if they're sitting in church. God isn't worried about any of that. He wants all the people, including the children, to hear his law. It's going to shape their lives. Jump down to verse 16. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, you are about to lie down with your fathers. Just a way of saying you're about to die. Then this people will rise and whore after the foreign gods among them in the land that they are entering. And they will forsake me and break my covenant that I have made with them. Then my anger will be kindled against them in that day, and I will forsake them and hide my face from them, and they will be devoured. And many evils and troubles will come upon them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us, because our God is not among us? And I will surely hide my face in that day, because of all the evils they have done, because they have turned to other gods. Okay, so the point there is, God knows Israel is going to be unfaithful to him. This is not a surprise to him. Now look at verse 19. This written law is going to be accompanied by a song. Now, therefore, write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full and grown fat, They will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness, for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. For I know what they are inclined to do even today before I've brought them into the land that I swore to give. So Moses wrote this song the same day, and taught it to the people of Israel. Okay, so what will the purpose of this song be? It will be a witness against Israel. The song serves as legal testimony, and practically it will confront them with their wickedness. Are you getting a hint of how this is going to apply to Revelation 15. If Revelation is a legal document, a legal complaint that Jesus is bringing against Israel because they've been unfaithful, then the song of Moses serves as a witness for God against the people of Israel. So then, here in Deuteronomy, uh, look at verse 26. Look at verse 26. Moses tells them to put this written law next to the Ark of the Covenant, which already contains the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments. This law is central. It's associated with the presence of God. It represents God's holiness, God's will to the people. It's to remain at the center of the nation. Now for the song itself, Deuteronomy 32. I'll just read parts of it as you follow along, and I'll make a few comments along the way. Start at the beginning, verse 1, Deuteronomy 32, verse 1. Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, 
ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. So it proclaims the greatness of God and God's character as just and faithful. Now, if that's God's character, what about the other covenant partner? What about Israel's character? What have they been characterized by? Verse 5, they have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. So Israel has been unfaithful to God. Then the song goes on to recount Israel's unfaithfulness in detail. And I won't go through all of that, but jump down with me now to verse 39. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. For I lift up my hand to heaven and swear, as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. God is completely in control. He is sovereign. He will execute judgment on his enemies in his time. Now pay special attention to the last words of the song, verse 43. Rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. So note there, in those last four lines, the two-sided description of God's actions. He takes vengeance on his adversaries and he avenges the blood of his children. Okay, Then it's restated. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. So I want you to see two things here. First, just like in Exodus 15, when God acts in judgment on his enemies, it is at the same time salvation for his people. So his people rejoice, both at the salvation that they're getting and at the judgment on God's enemies, the downfall of their enemies. Second, note that when it says that God cleanses the land, the word is literally atone. When the whole nation had sinned, then the land needed atonement. So the priests would carry out the atonement sacrifice for the land, for the tabernacle. Remember what we saw at the end of Revelation 14 last week? Rivers of blood that covered the whole land of Israel. The land was defiled through their national unfaithfulness to God and therefore needed atonement. Verse 44 now in Deuteronomy 32 tells us that Moses and Joshua taught the song to the people. So you could say that this is the song of Moses and of Joshua. Recall that Joshua is the Old Testament equivalent of the name Jesus. They mean Savior. 
and Jesus is the Lamb. So when Revelation tells us that the conquerors sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, we should probably think of this song that is the song of Moses and the song of Joshua. In other words, the song in Revelation 15 is the song of Moses and the song of the greater Joshua, the Lamb, Jesus. Okay, that's the background. Now, let's look at Revelation 15 itself. Okay, now be much more brief here because we've set it up. Revelation 15, in verse 1, John sees the sign in heaven of seven angels with seven plagues. And these plagues are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. We'll see these plagues in more detail in chapter 16 because they are the seven bowl judgments. But they're introduced here, and there's two things we should notice. First, This will be the final judgment that is in view in the book of Revelation. In other words, this will be the final judgment for Israel, for Jerusalem, for the temple. And second, the fact that they are called plagues brings our mind back to Israel's time in Egypt. The bold judgments will be described in plague language. In verse 2, we find what appears to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Now, we saw the sea of glass before, back in Revelation chapter 4, before the throne of God, and we saw that it corresponds to the bronze sea in the tabernacle courtyard. It symbolizes the firmament. It's like the sapphire pavement that Moses walked on on Mount Sinai. So again, it calls our mind back to Exodus, Mount Sinai, the tabernacle. The fact that this sea here appears to be mingled with fire tells us something too. Fire is associated throughout the book of Revelation with God's judgment. And the fact that the sea has changed its appearance to be like fire suggests that the sea is now red rather than blue. So we have a red sea associated with God's judgment. That takes us back to Exodus 15 with the Israelites standing on the shore of the Red Sea, having just witnessed God's judgment on Pharaoh's army. That judgment was, on the one hand, a judgment against God's enemies, but at the same time, salvation and deliverance for his people. So what do the conquerors in Revelation 15 do? They stand beside the sea and sing just like Exodus 15. Notice, though, that there's been a reversal. Just like in the second song of Moses, Deuteronomy 32, when Israel was unfaithful, God said they were no longer his children. Here, Israel has now taken the place of the Egyptians, and the church has taken the place of Israel. The church is now the people of God, the true Israel, They are the conquerors standing on the seashore rejoicing. Do you remember all the way back to the beginning of the series, Revelation 2, excuse me, 2 and 3? We saw the letters to the seven churches. And what did it it say to each one? To the one who conquers, I will give. The conquerors are the church. Okay? So here in Revelation 15, the conquerors, the church are the ones standing and celebrating what God has done. And the nation of Israel is the army drowning under the deluge of God's judgment. 
Then in verse 3, we have the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, the greater Joshua. And we don't have time to go into each place this morning, but the language of this song is drawn from a number of places in the Old Testament. It comes from Deuteronomy 28, from Psalm 110, from Haggai, from Zechariah, from Malachi. There's all kinds of Old Testament language that is pulled together here, but it's the language of the Exodus. It's being used to describe God's great works, his works of judgment against his enemies and deliverance for his people. And note that it's God's deeds that are being celebrated. Real, historical actions and events. God's victory is not just some spiritual, ethereal, floaty thing. It's historical. It's a real world victory. And notice the pattern here. Okay, this is important to see. The Exodus 15 song happens immediately after the victory at the Red Sea. Then, 40 years later, we have the other song of Moses at the Promised Land. Think about the pattern. In AD 30, we have Jesus' victory at the cross. And then 40 years later, we have this song in Revelation 15, celebrating the judgment of God that falls on Israel. That's 70 AD when that happens. And that judgment is also then deliverance for God's people, the church. Now, as the song continues in verse 4, note what happens. God is glorified and all the nations come to worship. We already saw those themes in Exodus 15, in Deuteronomy 32, the songs of Moses. But this is, this is consistent throughout the whole Old Testament. Here's a few examples. Jeremiah 10, verse 7. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms, there is none like you. It's essentially the same thing that we have in Revelation 15, starting at the end of verse 3. Or we could go to Psalm 86, verses 8 through 10. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. The end result is that all nations will come and worship in history because of God's works in history. See, the judgment of Israel was the beginning of the gospel of the kingdom going to the nations. That, that period from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. Because of God's mighty works, all nations will worship him. You and I serve a king whose kingdom is growing. Hear this. History is not the arena of Christ's defeat. Things are not just going to get worse and worse and the church will be a failure and the kingdom will never be established until God decides that enough is enough and he destroys it all. No, God's kingdom will be victorious. The nations will come to worship him. Jesus told us to go make disciples of all nations and that commission will be fulfilled. By the power of the spirit, the church will finish that mission. Jesus didn't give that commission in vain. 
It will happen in time, in history. The nations will honor Jesus. In verse 5 of Revelation 15, then, a new scene begins. The sanctuary of the tabernacle of witness in heaven is opened. This is talking about the holy place of the heavenly tabernacle. It's called the tabernacle of witness or of the testimony. Remember what we saw in Deuteronomy. Moses had the written law, the testimony, placed where? In the tabernacle beside the ark in order to be a witness. And since this here is the heavenly tabernacle, the witness or the covenant here is the new covenant, the testimony or witness of Jesus. Then in verses 6 and 7, the seven angels who come out of the sanctuary in verse 6, they're dressed as priests. They're described as having the seven plagues, but the bowls of judgment aren't actually given to them until verse 7. So we should probably in verse 6 be reading it as that they have authority over the plagues. And since they're dressed as priests, we should be looking for priestly actions or priestly associations here. We'll get into that a little bit more next time. In verse 7, then, one of the four living creatures around the throne gives them bowls full of the wrath of God. Why bowls? Well, we can go back to the building of the tabernacle, Exodus 37. And Bezalel made the vessels of pure gold that were to be on the table, its plates and dishes for incense, and its bowls and flagons with which to pour drink offerings. So these bowls were for drink offerings to be poured out. Now, to be honest, in scripture, we don't have a lot of information about the drink offerings. Numbers chapter 15 gives us the most information or the most detail that we have. And what we learn is that the drink offerings were supposed to accompany every burnt offering or sacrifice. Okay, The drink offerings accompanied every burnt offering or sacrifice. And if the Old Testament spoke of the offerings as God's food, then we should think of the drink offering as God's drink. Now, I said that the drink offering was to accompany every burnt offering and sacrifice. That's true, but not quite true. That was only to be the case after Israel was in the promised land. So while they were in the wilderness, those 40 years, no drink offerings. Being in the land would be Sabbath rest. So it's as if God is saying, I'm not going to drink the drink of rest until you have been given the land. And wine was a Sabbath drink. It's a sign of rest and celebration. So only after God had defeated the enemies of his people and brought them into the land, would he drink the drink offering of rest and celebration. Now, God gave those instructions to the people right after their rebellion at Kadesh Barnea. And that's when God told them they were going to have to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. So the drink offering was kind of a, a symbol or a sign of victory and rest, but not yet. Once God gave them the victory and the rest, then he would drink the drink offering of the wine of rest and celebration. So the Apostle Paul, as he gets near the end of his life, 
he's about to die, he describes his life as a drink offering that has been poured out for God. In other words, he's about to enter his rest and his life poured out for God will be a drink offering honoring God. Well, in Revelation, the bowls are described as containing two different things. First, they are golden bowls full of incense, which represent the prayers of the martyred saints. And then they're described here in Revelation 15 as golden bowls full of the wrath of God. So which is it? Well, it's both. They actually go together very well. What is it that the martyred saints were praying for? For God to avenge their deaths. Which is exactly what he does as his wrath falls from these bowls onto Jerusalem and the temple. And since this outpouring of God's wrath is the final judgment on Israel, it also brings about rest for the church. Their 40 years of suffering at the hands of the Jews are over. Their enemies are defeated. Israel has been judged. So the church finds itself now kind of fully established in the kingdom of Christ, just like Old Testament Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness between the redemption from Egypt at the Red Sea, 40 years to the promised land. Now the church has spent 40 years between redemption at the cross and the final elimination of the old covenant Israel and the full establishment of new covenant, the kingdom of Christ. Another way to say that is that the judgment on Old Covenant Israel, which happened in 70 AD, is also at the same time victory and rest for God's people, the church. So it's time for the Sabbath wine. It's time for the drink offering. And the bowls of judgment on Israel are at the same time the drink offering to the Lord, which can now be offered because that victory and rest has been achieved for the church. In Revelation 15, then, verse 8, we see the power and glory of God made visible in that the sanctuary is filled with smoke and no one can enter until the plagues are finished. That, of course, recalls God's presence filling the tabernacle when it was built in the wilderness and the glory of God that filled Solomon's temple when it was dedicated. The cloud of glory makes God's presence known. It's the symbol of his presence. And I want to make one other connection here that I think is helpful. The fiery presence of God appears a number of times in scripture. One of those times is at Pentecost. After Jesus' ascension, when the church begins. So it's like Sinai in that there is fire and wind and it fills the whole house. Just like later the tabernacle was filled and the temple was filled with God's presence. That's Pentecost. Okay? And then 40 years later, there's Holocaust. Jerusalem is destroyed in fire and war. From Pentecost to Holocaust, 40 years. Just like from Sinai to the Promised Land, 40 years. So picture it this way. For Israel, the 40 years began with redemption from Egypt. 
for the church, their 40 years began with Jesus' destruction of their enemies, the Canaanites. Excuse me. For the church, their 40 years began with Jesus' redemption at the cross. Redemption from sin. When Israel entered the promised land 40 years later, it meant the destruction of their enemies, the Canaanites. When the judgment of A.D. 70 fell, 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, it meant the destruction of the church's enemies. Jerusalem, the temple, Israel. Forty years between the two songs of Moses. And here in Revelation 15, the songs of Moses are sung as the church's 40 years comes to a close and their enemies are destroyed. The main point that I want us to take away this morning is this. God's people should rejoice at his judgment of the wicked. God's people should rejoice at his judgment of the wicked. Now, at first glance, we don't like that. Why would we rejoice at anyone's misfortune, right? Even the Bible says in Ezekiel 33, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So why should God's people rejoice at his judgment of the wicked? Well, what God says in Ezekiel 33 is true, but it's only half of the picture. Think through the logic of this with me for just a minute. I'm going to give you three different kind of logical conclusions, syllogisms, premises and conclusions. Number one, God is perfect, holy, good, and just or righteous without exception. Right? That's God's character. Everything he does fits that description. Second, God does judge the wicked. We know that to be true. So what can we conclude? Well, therefore, it is good and just for God to judge the wicked. All right, that conclusion follows. So far, so good. Here's another. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, that's the way the confession states it, but we know that to be a representation of what the Bible teaches. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's also true that God's glory is seen in his character and his works. Okay, God's glory is seen in his character and his works. Therefore, man should glorify God for his character and works and should enjoy God's character and works. Now, the two conclusions that we just reached, if we put those together, what can we conclude from that? Well, if man should glorify God and enjoy him for his character and his works, and it's also true that God's judgment of the wicked is good and just, then it follows that man should glorify God and enjoy him for his judgment of the wicked. Another way of saying that is, God's people should rejoice at his judgment of the wicked. Okay, so the question still remains, is it biblical? Are, are we just using logic to make things up? Or is this actually biblical? Uh, after all, shouldn't Christians be loving? Shouldn't we refuse to judge others? And anyway, remember what we saw in Ezekiel 33, God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Well, let's take a closer look at what God says there, Ezekiel 33. And what we'll find is that we really are only seeing half the picture when we say that. Here's the rest of the immediate context. And you, 
son of man, say to the house of Israel, Thus have you said, surely our transgressions and our sins are upon us and we rot away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? See, God is saying to Israel that his desire is that they would repent and live. He's ready to forgive their sins. But there are only two options. Either they turn from their wicked ways and live, or they will die for their sins. Those are the only two options. God is inviting them to repent and live, but God cannot ignore their sin. He's holy. He can't violate his holiness by just letting it slide. His goodness and righteousness and justice demands that sin be answered for. So God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked in itself, but he does delight in the display of his glory and goodness and holiness and justice. And the death of the wicked will be all of those things. So God will delight in the display of his good character, even when that comes in the form of the judgment on the wicked. And the same should be true of us. We don't take delight in God's judgment of the wicked because we like to see them suffer or because we want our anger to be given vent or any other such reason. Rather, we take delight in God's judgment of the wicked because it honors and glorifies God. It displays his goodness for all to see. It fulfills his righteousness and his holiness and his justice. And remember what we've seen today. At every turn, the judgment of the wicked is also at the same time the deliverance and salvation of God's people. And we rejoice in that. God's people should rejoice at his judgment of the wicked. So how do we put that doctrine into practice? Well, on one level, it's easy. We sing. We glorify God for his victory. We celebrate the salvation and the deliverance that God has given us. We celebrate the defeat of the wicked and the advance of Christ's kingdom. But there's another sense in which it's difficult because it has to do with our motives. Are my motives for rejoicing in the judgment of the wicked right motives? Am I motivated by personal vengeance or by a desire to see the honor of God avenged? By selfish hatred or by a desire to see the offense against God's people answered and God's people vindicated? The Psalms are a great guide for us here because we know they're expressing truth in a godly way. It's one of the reasons that we've been working on singing the Psalms over the last year or two. And many of the great hymns of the faith also represent these truths in a faithful way. God's people should rejoice at his judgment of the wicked. So this morning... As the new covenant people of God, we stand on the shore of the Red Sea. We stand as the conquering church beside the sea of glass that's mingled with fire, singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. We honor and glorify God for his victory 
and for his judgment of the wicked. For the salvation and deliverance that he has worked for his people through the slain and victorious lamb. Would you pray with me? Lord, I pray that we would be able to worship this morning in spirit and in truth. That the words that we sing as your people would be songs of celebration in your works. Your works both of deliverance and salvation for us and judgment of the wicked. Because those things display the glory and the wonder of your character. They show us and they show the nations who you are. We long for the day when the nations do come to worship. We pray that you would use us to proclaim, even in song, what you have done so that the nations will worship you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.